Welcome again to another episode of the Southwest Climate Podcast, the January 2019 edition. Mike? Zach, Happy New Year. Happy New Year. How you feeling? I'm feeling good. Excellent. All right, Mike, well, we got a lot to talk about. New Year, completely new climate. Yep. Right? Is that how that works? Clicks over. Midnight. Um, so what we're going to do, following our, our usual script, is recap the last month or so of weather in the in the Southwest. Last time we filed an episode, I, I believe we recorded a uh, before Christmas. Yeah, yeah the snowtacular, snowtacular episode. It's prescient. Uh, yeah. Don't well, you think? I I think you were a little bit, yeah. to some degree, although we'll revisit our bet, <laughs> and it true. doesn't look good for you so far. So Hey, I think phase type of precip over total is how we're going to redo this. Oh, you want to re- yeah. redo the numbers, I huh? Some, I have some adjustments that need to be made. Yeah, so we'll recap the last month. We'll also summarize and update on the snow conditions, and uh, we'll look forward uh, toward the future. Monsoon season. Yeah, say we... <laughs> Talk a little Let's bit. Jump of, forward, baby. Not that. No, I'm not ready for the monsoon. Yet. Okay. <laughs> we got some Enso stuff to talk about. Uh, We've also got some other other players in, in more recent weather, like the Arctic Oscillation has been in the news a lot. Polar Vortex, people dreaded. probably heard. Polar heard Vortex, about. yep. The MJO, mm-hmm. the infamous Man Julian. Is it infamous? Oh, and, and yeah. Maybe it's famous. Yeah. The Man Julian Oscillation. So there's a lot of, a lot of things to talk about. I leave anything off? No, I think you're good. You know, um, I have to say, though, before getting into it, as I was prepping for this earlier today, it occurred to me how much I rely on the, on the government's website. I, yeah, yes. There was a ton of information I couldn't access. This I'm was, basically flying blind right This now. is a shutdown edition. This of is a the, shutdown And edition. then you're going to see how incoherent our discussions are actually because now we, they're usually incoherent but now well, like I don't they're going to be more so right they're not they're not even going to be you know I'm not going to be reading discussions verbatim as content for the podcast yeah but on a serious point I mean I, I did realize how many sites that I I use and, and and go to by the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and other government agencies so uh, yeah was, some of our our charts are not updating because of the uh, websites being shut down uh, a lot of the data are being updated, though, um, because the National Weather Service is up and running, that's thankfully. Right. So that that's actually been good. So this won't be this will be like fifty percent content. Yeah. So you know, we just wanted to shout out to all of our colleagues out there that are doing some good work that are putting information that people can access. And uh, does look like the government's back on at least for the short term. I think we'll, so. Yep. We'll have update to update our plots. Mike, maybe let let's start with a, a recap of the last month or so. Maybe we can do all of December and then think about uh, – so we'll go back two months. Do, yeah. do December and then think about the last four weeks or so in, in January. So let me let me start it off and then you can fill in the, in the gaps. <laughs> I'll do the <laughs> no. stats. You do the, you, you do the hard part. I'll do the color commentary put, on that. You put the meaning together. Uh, we'll see. Where we last left off, December turned out to be a relatively dry month mm-hmm. across most of Arizona, if not all of Arizona with the exception of – you know, portion, portions of Cochise County and actually Tucson area uh, turned out to be uh, not so bad. But most of Arizona came in at below average for the monthly total. Uh, New Mexico it's, itself had, it was sort of a mixed bag, sort of the eastern half experienced above average rainfall and then large swaths of, of, of the western part and particularly around the, the Gila Mountains was below average. Temperature-wise, uh, it was basically slightly above above average, but you know, zero to two degrees—that uh, 
that's meaningful, but you know, kind of right around average, if you will. But then the weather started more to pick up at the end of the month. And if you just look at from Christmas on to current January 24th, it's been a, a different story than what we saw in, in December. So most of Arizona for the last full month, again, going back to uh, Christmas has been above average nearly across the entire swath of the Southwest. In that time, we had basically four events, if I remember. We had like a, a Christmas event. Santa came. Yeah. <laughs> came to my house. Did, did, yeah. I wasn't around. Yeah. So I'm looking, I'm looking at you. <laughs> I came to Tucson. I don't know where you were and I don't know what your problem is. <laughs> Santa, brought, Santa brought rain. Um, Santa did bring rain. I believe we had a, an, an event around the 25th, 26th, and 27th of, of December. We did. So the weather did turn towards the end of the month, which was which was good for at least the prospects of any of our bets of any precipitation coming online, even though we didn't have December in there. The beginning of December was not particularly interesting. I mean, it was uh, we had kind of ups and downs and temps. Lean slightly above average, as you talked about. I think we, you know, we ended up having that sort of transition pattern, ridging, troughing. I remember, you know, some warm ups, some cool downs, but it wasn't until right around Christmas Day, and then the rest of the week, we actually had some stronger storm systems drop out of the Pacific Northwest, and then some of them actually subsequently had some precip that they were dragging in here too, and it got subsequently colder over that week. And those storm systems still had precip, and we ended up having pretty decent snow across parts of the southwest. The unusual part was that we had a couple of snow events right around New Year's and days afterwards where the snow levels got down into the you know 2,000 feet range across Arizona New Mexico. Right. So that, that Christmas event, I think, was more confi- confined to southeast Arizona. Yeah. So this is, this is the interesting thing about kind of the backyard climate observing syndrome that I fall prey to is that I think it was amazing everywhere. And I kept running into people across Arizona that the northern parts of the state hadn't had quite as much weather as we've we've had, especially in the, the precip side. So, you know, having low elevation snow is one thing, but, you know, snowpack for across the rest of the state is not, it's okay, but it's not particularly overwhelming given the fact that it snowed in my backyard in, in Tucson. So it's been kind of an interesting mix. So it snowed in your backyard? <clears throat> snowed in my 25th? backyard. Um, no, on the, the 2nd. Of okay, January. so that was the New Year's event. Yeah, so, yeah so, so, so New Year's, by the time we got to New Year's, we we had this discussion in the Snowtacular. We talked about the kinds of events that would work for um, the Southwest to get snow, and, and they, they really materialized. The interesting thing, those were very, very cold storms with a little bit of precip. Those kinds of storms are not big precip producers right. because they're so cold. It's that very nature of being that cold. You can squeeze out the moisture out of the storms effectively, but they don't carry a lot with them, and they didn't really have anything to tap into. So that event came from a low-pressure system that was sort of wafting from the northwest, if I mm-hmm. remember. Yep, and it had, it had uh, again, it, it had brought some moisture with its – on its trajectory and was able, we were able to sort of squeak it out. I believe the Christmas event in Tucson was a little over half an inch, 0.6 inches, but then the the New Year's Day event only produced uh, around 0.2 inches or so. Yeah. So right. it was a, with, with actual, actual snow amounts recorded right. at the airport. So I think it was traced to a, a fraction of an inch as far as snow. Right. So it was a moisture starved event for the most part and quite cold. 
I mean, not totally moisture starved. And I think that that's that distinction. We have a lot of uh, low pressures that drop through the Southwest, like the ones we've had in the last week or so, where it will get cold here. You know, we had highs in the low 50s in Tucson, which is the, the coldest of days we would see here, but very, very dry. So where is it drawing moisture from? On that kind of a trajectory, is it just in training it with it from? Yeah, usually I, th- I think that you, I think it real subtle um, shifts in the storm track. If they're just slightly more coastal, they'll be able to have a little bit more moisture. Um, if they have a lot of moisture coming out of Pacific Northwest, they'll be able to drag it down. And I think some of the dynamics have to line up for it. But but th- then we can also have a lot of those events that will be um, cold inland uh, trajectories that didn't have any moisture or that moisture got worked out of them uh, much further north and then they just dropped down here as as dry lows. Yeah, it does really matter the the trajectory because it's just so subtle. Yeah, you know? like it, we looked at these weather maps, we were kind of paging through them and I think you were looking at them too is that just, you know, hundreds of miles in the axis of the trough can mean really dramatic differences as far as the kinds of precip, the temperature. And well, if you think about, like, even when you think about Colorado and, and, and Utah, where sometimes it's even amazing that they get precipitation at all. Because I know, getting that inland, yeah. The, the, the weather itself has to traverse over thousands of, of miles, depending on it, its trajectory. If it's coming from the northwest, then, you know, it's, it's, it's traveling over – Huge swaths of of land and, and very high mountains. Yeah. That's just sapping it of the the moisture, and so it's it's kind of amazing in that respect that Colorado and and Utah get the amount of uh, uh, snow that they do. And you know, and this is also why we focus on snow water equivalent so much more than we do snow amounts, because the snow amounts can vary enormously based on the temperature of the snow events, and so as you can end up having these high snow producing events of just powdery fluff. Mm. Dry snow. Dry snow. And then you can have these really, really wet events that will dump inches of snow water equivalent and, you know, produce the same depth yeah, based the, on the ratio of the snow depth the to density water. density of the snow. Mm-hmm. The snow depth to water, right. The January event is a good juxtaposition, I think, from the one that happened about a week later. January 6th, it actually turned out to be, at least for Tucson, but I think for other parts of Arizona as well, the biggest event so far. I think uh, at the airport about... 0.8 inches accumulated over a couple-day period. There was a quite a bit of liquid water even in that January 1st event. I, you know, I, I think it was, wasn't was quite as big as the events we got later in the month, and the characteristics of those events was really quite different too. So those, those early events that we got out of sort of the Christmas to New Year's, they were cold, and they had the moisture, and they ended up producing snow down to low elevations. And then we, we kind of switched over and then had some of these deeper troughs that were uh, cresting on the coast, they were crossing into the coast, and so they had a little deeper fetch of moisture. And so we ended up getting some uh, much higher snow level, warmer uh, rain events that but, we're able to. Put but are you saying that they it wasn't necessarily more moisture or more precipitable water around in those two events? It's just it was. I think it was different. I think that was probably lower precipitable water in the colder events in the earlier part of it, but just more efficient and getting the moisture out of the system, so you get the the precip amount of it precip out of it. And then as we moved into the events kind of in the, as you were talking about, like the week later, uh, we had a couple of other events that kind of spit. They got much warmer. Precipitable water went higher, but they were a little less efficient as far as getting the precip out of the system. So they're pretty different. Right. And I, I believe that January 6th event, which again was statewide, 
It right. wasn't just a local. That's you know, right. That's Southeast right. Arizona. That's event. a really good point. So that right, reminding me too that that early January event was pretty isolated to the southern part of the state, and then as you noted, as it moved into the mid part of January, we're talking like epic rain and snow from California all the way down through the Southwest. So it was sort of a bit of a shift in those dynamics. And I think the synoptics or the, the regional pattern was such that it allowed for, maybe you can explain a little bit more about this, but it allowed for moisture from the subtropic. It entrained some moisture as it, as it moved through from the subtropics, which which caused it to have a little bit more precipitable water than, than, than the other ones. Maybe, totally. Yeah. Maybe less efficient at wringing the atmosphere out uh, yeah. of its water, but yeah. there was more there. That's right. You end up having different mechanisms between sort of real cold, deep, low events and the efficiency around producing snow out of those systems versus having just a lot of soupy atmosphere and then um, needing to get the, the precip out of it you know, in a different way dynamically. The storm track has been really active, mm-hmm. and we, we haven't had any prolonged periods of real strong ridging or blocking uh, so far this winter, which is really, really different than we talked about a year ago and the the you know quasi winter that we lived through last year, which was that a winter? Uh, it's really generous to even call it winter. So I mean, this is really standing out as being pretty dramatically different, different from that, and just about every aspect so far. It was a, a very active jet, as as you said, and I was trying to f- integrate all of these sort of daily weather maps together and try to and try to piece out like dominant patterns. And you, you don't. really don't. Yeah. Up until the last week, where I think, and we can talk about this a little more, where there was sort of a more of a persistent ridge, but it wasn't like super super strong. But yeah, it, yeah, it was you, still there. I mean, yeah, it sort of oscillated between being trothy and 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 ridgy. But that being said, this winter. Which is still admittedly in in its in its first half has yet to produce a a really big defining event. How do you feel about that? It snowed in my house. What do you want? I mean, it's like what, well, if you look at if you look at last year, for example. Okay. Which oh, uh, you're, you're thinking like the February, uh, the mid February event. We, we had have last a really year. good memory. I do. I do this for a living. I mean, Damn. that's what I. Well, that's I do what too. I think but about I was like, stuff. I had to look back at your maps. Yeah, um, I unfortunately talk about this way too much offline. Yeah, well, well the the, the event that you're talking about, I mean, over a, a couple day period, three day period, it was like two inches of rain. Yeah. And fortunately, it was the only well, precip event. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> for the whole. I mean, that was pretty yeah. much it, aside from yeah. one other event. So, so that that was the it was a multi day event in February of last year that was actually completely subtropical and was even characterized as an atmospheric river by some atmospheric river scientists out on the west coast at San Diego. Is it like it was weird? Is there like an ARXB or AR dash? I don't even know. I mean, like they they name storms on the Weather Channel now, so I don't know <laughs> if we get to name our own atmospheric river events. I don't think we have the. We, we you and I definitely don't have the ability. No, to No, we them. don't. No, we don't. There's I think we should like just do like popular cat names. I mean, <laughs> Mr. Whiskers, <laughs> atmospheric river, Mr. Whiskers. Okay, that one that goes in the that, books there yeah. right now. So we'll have we'll have Ben uh, erase this. <laughs> Please uh, do. Please edit this. Commentary. Edit this down heavily. Um, what were we talking about? We were talking about so that defining event. So the, I, you know, I think that 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 storm period from the, the holiday storm period was I thought it was fantastic. I thought it was it was very beneficial as far as we talk when we think about drought relief. It was cool. It had snow associated with it. Multiple events, and that really extended even into the middle part of January. 
it has not favored all of the Southwest. There some, and this is what it's also been kind of unusual is that the far northern parts of the state haven't benefited as much as we have over this period. And then since, you know, we really since the middle part of the month after those events have still not really, we've had a little bit of ridging, but we've also had plenty of troughing too. We've had the, the temps have gone way back down this particular week. So it's not like we're back into a blocking pattern. Okay, so you think there was a defining event? It wasn't like, yeah, it wasn't like last. I was just thinking in terms of precipitation amounts. Again, we've on that six. I think at the airport, it produced around point eight inches. So that's that's pretty good. But we've had in the in the past last year like two inches, and I guess we'll we'll see how that plays out. So and it's very very hard to get, and it's almost impossible to get those precip amounts out of cold systems Mm -hmm. this far south. You just won't do it. In an El Nino year, however, you might expect there to be greater chances for getting sort of a, a moist tropical. Totally. Yeah. Then you're going to get your high end pineapple express, month. so to speak. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. And if you play your cards right, you can even have decent snow levels and the heavy precepts. So it's it really is when we talk about the really really good water resources types events, then it's going to be those that convergence. So moving right along, though, after the sixth, we had a couple more days of sort of unstable weather. Not real large rainfall producers, but they brought a lot of clouds. They helped suppress temperatures. It was cold. Yeah. The second half of the month, the second half of January, or the last two weeks, let's say, were were fairly cold. And so you know, right now in terms of Tucson, you know, we're slightly you know above average for the month of January. So yeah, we we can't complain. Phoenix is uh, slightly under its average, so it's 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 received about three quarters of an inch. It usually gets about, on average, gets nine tenths of an inch. Flagstaff is at two point four inches. Its climatology is two point zero five, so it's above average. Over to New Mexico, Albuquerque is at a half an inch. That's above average. It usually gets around 0.4 inches. And Las Cruces, the driest of of those cities has received only about uh, 0.2 inches and, you know, its climatology is about a half an inch. So mixed bag, like I said, it's, it's, still, it's still on the early half of, uh, of the winter. Let's transition over. What do you think has been the major players in the weather of the, you know, the last couple months? What have been the major drivers from a climate perspective? So I'm talking like El Nino. We've heard a lot about the Arctic Oscillation, polar vortex, Ooh, <laughs> you're spooky. <laughs> you're spooky sounds. Sorry, that, that, that harkens back to the Halloween episode. <laughs> it was. Uh, that Julian oscillation, anything of note? So it was supposed to be El Nino, right? Mm-hmm. No. El Nino has been, it's been hanging out technically. It Technically, it exists in sea surface temperature patterns. It exists in name only? It exists in name only. It exists in name only. It, it's been very interesting. The sea surface temperature anomalies were warm enough to be classified in El Nino event. And I think that the anomaly – do you think so? Well, I don't, I'm, I mean, I'm wondering about I think it's going to actually I mean, I, speak I it out. I wrote a question down. I was like, is this actually going to be an El Nino That's event? a really good and question. And the reason I don't, I don't know, know this is because I couldn't get the data today. That's <laughs> true. Because yes. I was like, what are what yeah. were Have the we, average values right. in, in December? Right. So from, from I, I, to remind everybody who hasn't gotten tired of us talking about this is that some of the official definitions, and there are many official <laughs> definitions, which I guess define Some better than others. Some better than and others. And in fact, probably the one that we use isn't the best one. It probably isn't, but it's the easiest to get your head around, right. which is the sea surface temperature anomaly in a part of the Pacific Ocean over a period of time. And yeah. it has to be above this threshold over a period of time to actually classify as an El Nino event. I don't know if if it's going to make it. If it does make it, 
it's going to crash the entire El Nino forecasting system because it'll be yet another <laughs> bad data point in our expectations. Well, for, I don't know though because well, it's, it's true. It's going to actually it's going to win for the wrong reason. Well, right, but I mean, if you look at the Southwest, which is one of the places that has a statistically significant signal, I yeah. mean, I I think I don't know what the averages across the Southwest are, but like just judging by Phoenix, like it's kind of or not yeah, Phoenix Tucson. It, it kind of makes you wonder now, like going back into the historical record, how many of those wins for El Nino were dumb luck. Yeah, just right. right. Yeah, because honestly, if we go back, we're, you know, we've been kind of picking apart the weather over the last couple of months. You know, we had all that tropical storm activity in October, which nailed it. November was basically a dud. It got quiet again. December picked up with quite normal winter weather that we don't often see here in the Southwest, which was great. It's going to add to the But photo. not El Nino-like? It wasn't driven point? by El Nino, yeah. no. So, the, so this has been the background discussion at Climate Prediction Center. The expression, El Nino's surface, sea surface temperature almost warm temperatures are supposed to affect the atmosphere above it, which in aggregate would then affect the weather systems in the Northern Hemisphere, Southern Hemisphere as well. They haven't. The main player this winter and very, I think you can make a pretty nice connection between the weather patterns we've seen over the last four weeks has been the Madden-Julian Oscillation. So the Madden-Julian Oscillation, you know, from the Indian Ocean, moving eastward across tropical Pacific and then influencing the jet stream pattern has indeed shown up. And I think you can tie it right back to our, especially our January events. So when Um, that sort of, the MJO has this sort of focal point of convection as it moves east across. Yeah, it moves, it moves into the easterly winds. And so the easterly winds are actually the medium in which they're, it's actually able to propagate into towards the eastern direction. So it actually goes against the wind, which actually is what drives that's, the that's cycle. That's pretty crazy. Isn't that neat? Yeah, it's it's a convergence zone that relies on it running into something to drive itself into the wind. And so that's that's whoa, whoa, the Medjulian oscillation it seems propagation. seems like it goes against physics. Well, it's it's about convergence, right? And right. so you need to actually have oh, an right. Out, right, outflow of wind at the surface running into something new to drive the new convection and then so on and so forth. Sort of like hops? Kind of, yeah. I think it, you could have pulses of convection. I think you could think of it in that terms, moving into the the mean wind. So, so this is the interesting thing about the MJO is, in an El Nino event, it's a quiz question. What happens to the wind? What happens to the easterlies in an El Nino event? They slacken. Yeah, so they slacken. So the MJO in a situation where the easterlies collapse don't have anything to propagate into. So typically of you have a weakened MJO activity, or sometimes it just doesn't happen during an El Nino event. But we have an El Nino event, albeit a weak one, and we have MJO activity. So it's just like it's upended everything. So anyways, the MJO has been very important weather feature for, you know, California all the way down to us. So what does it do to the jet stream, though? Because that's what's important to us, right? Like we need that jet stream to be active. Yeah, yeah. Uh is this a question for me? Yeah, I know. Now, now, now I'm going to put buddy. a pause here, too. I'm just trying to think about what it is. <laughs> this is a very weak answer. It influences circulation pattern. It influences the extension and retraction of the jet mm-hmm. across the Pacific Ocean, which will then subsequently uh, Im- impact the storm track mm-hmm. across the western U.S. And you even saw, as this MJO was coming across, sort of strengthening a cutoff low out in the East Pacific that then merged with a larger scale trough coming across and ended up walloping California. And we got some, that was, some seconds out of it. Yeah, That was um, 
about 10 days ago. Is yeah, that, that, yeah, that was the, you know. Yeah, we'll that, talk about that when we, yeah. when we recap the snow because yeah. that, that delivered a, a bunch of snow to the Sierras. Yeah, it was great. It was a fantastic event for the California. They, they needed it. Okay, so the MGA, MJO. Madden Julian Oscillation. Madden Julian Oscillation. Just like to Other, shorten it Affectionately up. known as the MJO. Yeah. So that's that's been the, the, the ma- major player. Now, you said that they typically aren't as frequent during – and so, no El Nino, El Nino event. They 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 tend to emerge during neutral, right? Sometimes during weak El Nino events, and then sometimes during. And that's what was playing in late December, early January. Yeah. So it had it, you. You can do these. The, look at these cool plots. These Wheeler plots, and you can track the progression of the disturbance around the planet. It takes about you know it could be thirty to sixty days. Uh, really quick ones can move across the planet in a month. And so they t- tend to emerge in convection in the Indian Ocean and then move towards us. And sometimes they'll stall out. They just won't make it. Sometimes they'll go all around the planet and then emerge again on the other side. Ours ended up moving across here late December, early January. Then as you get in, you get into the other phase of it, and it tends to do what it's doing right now, which you tend to dry out, warm up a little bit. But there's another MJL forecast to do the same well, thing. That was my next question. Yeah, so, yeah. So so what's, on the, what's on the horizon? On the horizon, within two weeks, we move back into this very similar phase that it was in early January. Hmm. Right? Something to keep and an eye so on. So what well, shows up in what you and I were seeing, right, was that it seems to be the hinting at the long-range part of the forecast out in the you know 7 to 14 is that MJL moving into more favorable western and so it, it helps US. break down whatever, if there was a ridge present, yeah. it would help break yeah. down that. It's sort of a kind of higher order weather pattern it has since you can see it out you know on the other side of the world it's basically one of the main signals we use in predictive forecasting out past two weeks now the other climate pattern that people talk about often in the winter is the arctic oscillation Mm -hmm. what about the arctic oscillation so the arctic oscillation has been mostly positive earlier in the winter and which means that the polar jet is fairly high latitude, fairly contained, bottling up the cold air. And the recent research has really, well, there's, it's a real mixed bag in the research, and it seems to be really complicated, and we're still sort of sorting it out. But there are a couple of different camps. I think they all end up aligning uh, largely when we, we try to thread all this stuff back together. But the Madden-Julian oscillation is known to, in when it's strong and when it crosses certain parts of the world, to disrupt the polar vortex and disrupt and move the Arctic Oscillation from positive of bottling up that cold air into a negative phase where it causes it to spill south. Maybe we should clarify terms. Okay. Polar vortex and Arctic Oscillation. So um, they're similar. They're geographically related. Arctic Oscillation is usually expressed as... It's a phenomenon of spatiotemporal patterns at the high latitudes in the Northern Hemisphere. So is the Arctic Oscillation more a technical term and the polar yeah. vortex is more of a sort of... <laughs> it's, a, it's a little popular... Kind of a, yeah. It's, it's a, it, I mean, it's a term, it's a scientific term that's been around for decades, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it, it's a way of describing some of the physical geography, physical climatology of Northern Hemisphere weather patterns. So maybe, so what happens then is, so, so the polar vortex is... Wintertime phenomenon. Yeah, it's it's, a, it's, an, it's ex- an upper level low pressure that strengthens into response to that area not getting any more sunlight and having high albedo ice covered. So it's exhausting a lot of energy out to space. So it co- gets very cold. Mm-hmm. The atmosphere gets the atmosphere basically 
It's thinner. It's thinner. Yeah. I mean, compressing it, it's colder atmosphere, so it takes up less space in the vertical direction. So at certain altitudes, you end up having an emergent low pressure system because of a response to the tropics having a higher, uh, thicker atmosphere. Right. And so it's it's a wintertime phenomenon because the temperature gradient between the poles. Yeah, thank you. It's a much cleaner way of saying it. The tropics is, is highest. Yeah. And so what happens is you end up getting these fierce, strong winds that circulate yeah. around yeah. the there, – there's – there's an oscillation both in, on both poles, but we'll just talk about the, That's right. I'm just, the northern just pole. Nor- yeah, yeah, the one I'm familiar with. And so you get these strong winds that sort of circulate around the high latitude. Yeah. And the position of maximum wind is usually called like the polar front. That's right. And the polar front is geographically driven by the sharpest temperature gradient at the surface. So, so that polar front is in response to where those, those temperature gradients are strongest. When you have a stronger polar front, what you tend to have is winds that are more constrained. And so if you think about it circulating the, the poles, it's, it's, it's less sinuous. So it's a it's a more of a straight line if you will. sure yep and it's it's usually um, contained at a higher latitude and that gradient is contained right. at a higher latitude and that's usually called the positive Arctic oscillation that is the positive right. ar- that's the expression of the positive Arctic oscillation and so what happens though like which is important for the the U S particularly the east part of the U S is that when you have a positive Arctic oscillation you have these really strong winds and it sort of bottles up all the the cold air up north is you, it doesn't allow that cold Arctic air, air to spill south the reverse happens when you have a weakening of the Arctic oscillation you have a much more sinuous path of this polar front that loops down into northern parts of the U S the eastern east coast U S brings really frigid weather and can bring some unstable conditions and and so when people talk about the polar vortex in the U.S., they're often talking about when the Arctic Oscillation is slackened, right? Yeah, yeah. And they get these these really cold lobes of Arctic air that that droop down into northern northern regions. Right. And in some years, and it's quite often when you have this real dramatic shifts in the Arctic Oscillation towards negative, polar vortex can split into pieces. And the splitting of pieces actually appears to connect back to Magdalene Oscillation, some camps. And there's there's quite a few papers out on that. And then there are other camps, which I think it is all related. I just don't have it all. I can't fit it all in my head so when, on how all those things connect. But but sea ice extent and um, snow cover extent in the early fall become precursors to later on having what we call these sudden stratospheric warming events, which break apart but the, the polar we- vortex. Okay. So just to put a, a bow on this. Um, Good luck on the synoptics. Like we wouldn't say that the that the weak weaken weakening of the Arctic Oscillation, which has been happening in recent last ten days or so, or actually it was even in the first part of of January. I'm looking at the the index right now. We probably can't call on that as a major driver of the sort of unstable weather that we were we were no. experiencing. No, ours is mostly MJO. Okay, yeah, over here, and you know the AO Arctic Oscillation and the polar vortex don't do a lot for the West, don't have a lot of influence. I think they can subsequently, all the way around the planet, trigger and enhance and suppress weather events that then relate back to the MJO, relate to predictability that is going to be upstream for us, but not directly. We, we can have situations, and I think you and I talked about this years ago. I can't remember if it was 2011 or 2012. It was probably last week. It probably was last week. <laughs> it's very, very possible, is that some... Some real negative AO events will cause the entire 
continental U.S. to get really cold. And those big, big cold outbreaks, I think it was our 2011 one, was a very negative Arctic oscillation. And it was, you know, we ended up having freezing air, freezing temperatures, crash all the way out to sea in the Pacific coast and south through Florida. That was sort of an extreme where the whole continental U.S. gets spilled south. But you can also get these warm west, cold east patterns, which have been pretty common the last couple of years. So it's the it's the tropic stupid when we talk about well, I mean, weather that, in the that it's it's like I think that you know the research really points to it's a list of of probably causal mechanisms tropics. Then we go to higher latitudes and look at fall snow cover, and then we look at things like sea ice extent and all those changes. And quite honestly, you have to add them all up. Ugh, to- yeah, and I, right, it's you know these like multiple linear regressions. You you look at sensitivity of these different factors, and sometimes one wins over the other, and the system is changing at the same time. And so as sea ice extent changes every year due to climate change, the relationships in the background change as well. And so it's like the paper that was written five years ago may end up having some different results if you did it. And it's also crazy just to think about like, I mean, the atmosphere, it's a circle. And so if you perturb it in some area, I mean, it's gonna, it, it has yeah. a rippling effect around the yeah. globe. But yeah. if, if you're looking for the cause, like you're just continually going upstream and, you know, you, you it's it's really hard to find yeah. the thing that, yeah. the, the perturbation that. Right. Well, and this is why at climate time scales, heating anomalies in the ocean become the thing you look at upstream, right? Like that. You can trace it back to, okay, there's warm water here and there's not warm water here. Or that warm water is here, which is driving connection. It's moved over here. So that's why you end up, when you do trace it back upstream, you end up ending a lot of times back at some anomaly in the sea surface temperatures. That's, that's good. Okay, so the, 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 the bullet point there is that the MGO has um, exerted its, its, flexed its muscles so far. Don't count it out. Yep. Yeah. All right. I think we should move on and uh, just provide a, an, an update on uh, the snowpack conditions. I mean, a lot of this is, is related to the precipitation that we were just talking about, but it's worth sort of highlighting the pattern across the West, particularly for those people who are interested in, uh, in, in skiing in some of the mountains. Or uh, drinking it. I mean, that, that might actually... I guess that's more I'm more, more interested important. in the drinking part of it than your ski trip. <laughs> okay. So. okay. Okay. That's more important. You're right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's, there's more things... In- <laughs> There's more things than, than skiing fresh powder in the West. I'm right? with you, man. I, I think it's just – that was my passive-aggressive way of of saying I wish I was going skiing. A large fraction of the reporting stations in the in the mountains in Colorado and Utah are all above average. For those that I'm looking at across the Sierras, because the map that I'm looking at doesn't have all of the Sierras, but those that I'm looking at are above average as well. And Arizona is kind of, kind of a mixed bag, actually. When you look up at – the Flagstaff area, there are some that are slightly above and some that are slightly above below. So. Yeah, it's it's pretty classic Arizona look to our, our snow data. And I would also say that the the snowpack in maybe the only part of the of the Colorado Rockies that aren't doing as well is the the San Juan Mountains, south southwest part of part of the state. But then when you go north of California, north of Utah, north of of, of Colorado, for the most part, it gets dry. In yeah. terms of snowfall. Isn't that where you're going skiing? It is, actually. Should we have looked at this map before? Well. You don't care, do you? What I care about, Mike, is that while we're skiing, oh, that's right. it gets snow. That's right. Because any mountain in the West, if you ask me, is, is, is fun to, to, to ski on with snow. Maybe my snobbery shines here. <laughs> any mountain in the West that hasn't received a lot of snow, 
uh, let's say in a week is eh, it's just kind of ho hum. Um, Fair enough. Yeah, I just, I, yeah. But it is interesting that the Northern Rockies, basically, it's Idaho and Wyoming north, have not had as much of a snow year as everybody south so far. And cl- this includes um, Pacific Northwest as well. Maybe I should tell the story. Tell it. And the story is we, Mike and I went through this interesting exercise in the in the last 10 days. And that was more or less trying to look at the models and decipher uh at the nine, the ten, the nine or ten day mark out from when we had to buy a ticket, where not we, you, where where I had to buy a ticket, where I and a couple of my friends should go skiing. Yes. So, and the the backstory to this is like we do this every year, and a couple years we just got lucky, and every year actually, I, I'm like I look at those seasonal forecasts and I'm like, all right, so. You know, it's hedging, you know, north. So, we'll, you know, we'll go to Big Sky or, or we'll go, you know, somewhere else in the, in the northern. Or it's like, it looks like it's Utah. Yeah. You know? So yeah. I will, I, I do actually Have you done you know, well? Walk the I, thought, talk. I thought I remember no, a couple I years done, where you just like crashed out. No, I haven't done well at all. Oh, that's right. Okay. Right? And so this actually. You're going to try to bring science into this. This actually. <laughs> well, I was using the seasonal forecast, but you I, know, I mean. Stand by what I said. Right? Like I can't, I can't be up there for three straight months. You know, it's like, <laughs> you, it's really weather that you're talking about. And so the idea was this year was to, okay, let's see if we can get within the time horizon of some predictability on the weather level yeah, and use that as a way to increase our chances of getting snow. So you and I were looking at the models literally every like six hours updating the models. And I hadn't done this before and I I, I learned a little bit. I do this every day, Zach. Welcome to my world. I have not ever paid attention to forecasts beyond seven days. Wow, I live yeah. I live out at that at that time horizon because there's always magic happening out there. <laughs> well, Giant that, storms. Well, this is what crazy I, things that never happen. So this is I think worth worth talking about. So in my mind, the meteorologist's ability to see the future uh, in a way that is 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 better than just sort of a reference, like a, a climatology uh, forecast. There's no accuracy beyond seven days, or seven to ten days. And then anything beyond 10 days, it's kind of wishful thinking in terms of weather forecasts. But, you know, you can go out there. And I think the Weather Channel or some apps uh, on my my phone, you can actually see the 10 to 14-day. AccuWeather does a 30-day. What I was seeing is at that sort of 10-day to 14-day level is every six hours – the forecast would change dramatically. Isn't so that one, fun? one day I was like, like this is this is amazing. Yeah. Right? Like atmospheric river in Tahoe. Yeah. You know, the next six hours later it was like bone dry. I have friends where we trade emails of our three eighty four <laughs> of this the magic that we see. So three eighty four is fourteen is that fourteen days? It's as far out as the, the GFS goes. Yeah. Oh my God, there's just amazing things that happen out there. So I guess the question I have for you there's some amazing things that happen out there. So <laughs> they really it, are. So is there they might be physically so, implausible. Wait, so, but this is a question that I want to know is beyond 10 days, like what do you get out of looking at the models? Fun. I, it's just entertaining. Yeah. I mean, are you integrating anything? At, no. At, are you looking for patterns? Sure. But they're pointless. It's, it's noise, quite honestly. It's noise. So there's, for the most part, yeah. Yeah. I mean, okay. So this is the raw model output from any model. You can look at the ensemble, and the ensemble will usually tell you, and the ensemble is, like for the uh, global forecast system we run here in the U.S., is end up is going to end up running 12 
slightly different initializations of the forecast system, GFS. And then that's the ensemble. And so then you can look at the statistics of the spread out there. But even on that, you end up having so many different realities that you just kind of scan them and go, ooh, wouldn't that be fun if that happened? But yeah, that's, that's what it. I was doing. Yeah. And I was bringing in my friends. Oh, I know. I do. I do. They were like, oh, this is amazing. And yeah. then do you think stopped, that'll happen? You're like, I have no idea. They stopped tuning in to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it was fun. And you and I were pushing on this and are still looking at this potential pattern change that we saw a couple days ago that may happen late next week that quite honestly is probably related to the MJO. If the MJO, which is forecast, same models, GFS, to start moving in our direction and influencing our weather out at that time scale. One of the things that I was noticing, maybe something that was more persistent than, than not, was that it did seem like that the snow track was sort of coming down from the Pacific Northwest, actually more like the British Columbia and, go, and, and Banff and Calgary and coming down through the sort of northern part of the Rockies, Idaho, Wyoming, dipping slightly into Colorado and then and then going back towards towards the northeast in, in that way. And and that, you know, when when we're looking at the near term, the next seven days, that still seems to be what the climate models are, are favoring. So although they're also now saying that uh, on the near term, you know, Tahoe looks like it's uh, it could get substantial amount of snowfall. Which um, was one of your choices, right? Which was one of the choices. So we ended up on Mike's recommendation, uh, I, I said go to. I said we ended up I going said to, Tahoe all day, but you were like, "Oh, it's too expensive. I can't afford the beer." <laughs> and so, be honest about why you chose Big Sky. Well, we chose we chose Montana. Actually, it was based in part because at the time, nine days out, which is still like admittedly like yeah. fantasy land. You took the safe route, man. Yeah, we went. You got to be honest. But I guess the point that, that that I'll make here is that so the pattern so far in the snowpack in the in in the west has been sort of more toward the the Colorado Utah and, and south yeah i mean the and, storm and now is... it looks like it's changing a little bit yeah. and in the next week or so two weeks we'll see a little bit more in in the northern stretches yeah no? yeah no? well i, I no? it's well it's interesting i was looking at the cpc forecast so this climate prediction center actually issues a 6 to 10 day forecast and an 8 to 14 day which you and i were were looking at quite a bit so they're, they're actually a human integration where a, f- a forecaster sits down with all these models and tries to do exactly what you said, which was like decipher some kind of pattern and usually do some mental averaging of different model information, taking into account things like the MJO, looking at composites of past events, looking at statistics of where statistical models might give you a leg up over a dynamical model, and then do a probabilistic forecast of whether or not that place would lean wet or dry just like or, or cold or warm just like our seasonal forecast. yeah it's it's hard though because those probabilistic forecasts are still in the like the sort of tercile they are know. but that's all the signal you get out of it that'd be the only way you'd get skill like you wouldn't be able to predict oh i'm going to get two inches of rain in this spot at that point all you can do is say well could any be anywhere from like two tenths of an inch to five inches but that's those are both above average and so I'll, i'm going to lean in that direction and so what are they what the are they saying then um the latest update was trending in the way that you and I saw, which was to start to see that wet pattern come in across almost all of the West. Mm, so not just the northern northern no. areas. So the northern tier was wet like we saw. California ended up becoming much, much more bullish, and it started to push south into Arizona, which is what we which we is what we had seen. 
polar vortex still parks over the eastern part of the country. We're under this more ridging. So this is suggesting what we call more active southern stream, a more of a subtropical jet type More of an Enso-like. Yeah, a little bit more Enso-looking. So it's going to be classic if this is now the expression of Enso showing up in February for this event. All right, Mike. Not impossible. If you had to advise our listeners where to go skiing in 7 to 10 days, where would it be? What's Tahoe. Tahoe. Yeah, I'd say right now. Buy your ticket. That's why I told you. <laughs> and you didn't listen to me. <laughs> I'm going to. I want the webcam. I'm going to pipe the <laughs> webcam of Tahoe when the weekend you're in at Big Sky. And I just, I want I mean, the news reports of like the crazy things that are happening there. Let me tell you why I didn't, I didn't go with your recommendation. I know why. I already because told you. Because you made the prediction last month of 1.5 inches <laughs> for January. Nice segue. In Zach. Tucson. Nice So segue. I just want to just revisit our bet uh, before <sighs> wrapping it up here. That's um, fair. Say say where we are. But, you know, we both predicted or, or maybe guesstimated. Yeah, how did we? And we ended, we ended guesstimated up. We even the, came up with like almost identical amounts. It was ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, January is quite different for you and I. I, I had an, uh, an inch and a quarter and you had an inch and a half. And, you know, right now we're at uh, – and the climatology, by the way, was 0.95 inches. And right now we're – what was it? We're slightly we're, – we're at about an inch. And it doesn't look like in the near term that the- – Hey, there are three ensemble measures on January 30th that yeah. give me five hundredths of an inch. <laughs> well, we'll see. We'll see if, if you get <laughs> that. very encouraging. But it looks like you're going to be running at a half an inch deficit. It's going to be rough. Yeah. Yeah. But that's um, where you get my February event from last year. No, and this was Atmospheric cool. Atmospheric River, Mr. Whiskers <laughs> returns. No, this was cool. Actually, we got a few emails from from folks who who do this kind of exercise uh, at their own uh, at their own houses, and uh, uh, they had some interesting uh, tallies and, and projections as well. So I think we I think we have an online betting pool. All right, so I'm slightly over, about a half an inch over so far. You're you're or no, a quarter of an inch. You're like a half an inch oh. for February. You're more bullish than me again at, at 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 one inch, and I have three quarters of an inch. I'm feeling I'm feeling better. Cl- about we're like February. we're like splitting climatology there. Yeah. And then March, three-tenths of an inch. Yeah, yeah. I'm feeling good about that. I went big. I I don't feel that good about that. I went 0.9 inches. Well, what if El Nino all of a sudden shows up? You could be in the money right there. Okay, so that's a great segue into our final segment here, which is what the heck is Enso going to do? I've moved on to monsoon season. I already told you that. I'm already like (laughs) June 15th, baby. We just just Uh, finished the monsoon. We just (laughs) Just, stopped talking about it. We did just stop talking about it. Yeah, this is uh, is like a mess because it – I always feel like I get so let down in February and March. Like I just feel like this, the winters get shorter and the, the spring, spring season gets longer uh, every year, which actually is shown in the literature to be happening. So Okay. So, we, you know, we sort of like questioned before if, if this is actually an, an, an El Nino event. And it's been hovering around marginal if it, if it turns out to be. Yeah. But um, some of the – so there's two interesting things that I think that, that came up recently – one is that in some of the forecasts from the IRI, the International Research Institute for Climate and Society, their mid-January forecast has for next year another El Nino, or yeah. it's greater probabilities. That is really interesting. And so it's curious <clears throat> to me what is driving this sort of uptick in, in, in chances. And it's it's worth noting that climatologically, there's like a 30% chance that it would be an El Nino. And so this represents a shift from 30% to, to close to 
So do you have any sense as to what they're picking up on? A lot of those longer lead outlooks rely on the cycle within El Nino where it is recharging and discharging and the warm water in the West Pacific. And so you haven't seen a real effective discharge of a lot of the warm water in the West Pacific. And you don't really see any cold um, Mm. sea surface temperature anomalies now flowing back across the Pacific as you would see during a sort of a strong El Nino event. So I think this is, again, a kind of a middling Central Pacific El Nino event, not particularly strong, still warm water. And again, I think Ben was talking about earlier that there's some discussion around analogs of 1415 were, which the, the, was last the last time, time that we, we had ended up two in a row, a double dip, with which the second one being the big one, the big one, quote unquote. Well, who cares? I mean, it didn't do <laughs> well for here. Yeah, I mean, that, yeah, I was so unimpressed. Backyard I'm climatologist. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> didn't snow at my house that year. I mean, again, it, it probably then just points to possibility of another weak El Nino event or just neutral and maybe not mattering. But these situations with these kinds of winners with MJO activity, we've done well in those right. those situations. So they don't portend something like we had last winter, which was really bad. <laughs> last year was not a good winter. No. Um, aside from that February event, if it hadn't been that February oh, event, yeah. it might have been the, one of the driest, if not the driest on record. But a lot of the state did not have that February event, mm. right? I mean, there, there was, you know, from like Southeast Arizona North did not. That's mm. why Four Corners and parts of Central Arizona were in the deepest drought category they could get. So the other thing that I found interesting is that all of the models, uh, dynamical models and even statistical models have basically, well, not all of them, all but maybe two have already called the peak El Nino. <laughs> they're, t- they're already done with it. That's probably right. Right. So like yeah, going forward, like we, no, we've peaked. Yeah. There's no reinforcing elements here. Um, I think as we saw, there's not real strong warm water coming to surface in the Central and East Pacific, uh, it's, it's kind of near average and even a little bit of some cool anomalies. But back in the West Pacific, still warm water. So it could but, be Midland for a while. But the other thing, and this goes to our conversation earlier about the metrics that we use to judge an El Nino. If you look at the sort of atmospheric ind- indices, like the Southern Os- Oscillation Index, and at no time had they been persistently El Nino-like. So the yeah. atmosphere was has never like gone in lockstep with... No, they're a lagging indicator, but a strong indicator of the atmospheric coupling. And sure, yeah, you could totally have that. But happen. even in like December's values are not El Nino at all. Right, and, right. And, and um, so we don't have January's obviously, but... So we talked about this uh, paper we had read and I think discussed in previous podcasts or so, had really talked about the... The timing of the reinforcing elements at key times of the season that could either sort of strengthen or suppress um, the sea surface temperature anomalies, and I just think that we got caught in a situation where we just didn't have the the right cooperation from overriding atmospheric components to really reinforce the event. And we had a couple of passages of the MGL where it actually construct destructively interfered with the El Nino signal, which so it works at cross purposes with the atmospheric coupling. What about the forecasts? The seasonal forecasts from the Climate Prediction Center are from last week are a lot less. <laughs> they've all they've all drifted back to equal chances. Yeah, for the Southwest for the rest of the spring. And then when you look at the North American multi-model ensemble for the February, March, April period, it's yeah, it's equal chances with the exception of like a slight tilt. Um, yeah. in maybe parts of of, of Eastern Colorado. And actually, on the dry side, it's 
sort of Oregon and Northern California. It's not below average for the Southwest. I think yeah. it leaves a lot of room. I just think there's a lot of uncertainty right. with the fact that there's that there's not that immovable object in the Pacific, you know, steering. Right. Stuff. Everything's in play. Everything's in play, which is I think it could make it interesting. All right. So with that, Mike, do you want to refine? Now you don't get to do this. In, I know in I reality, but do you want to refine anything that any of the that would suggest I was wrong. The the precipitation values that that you guesstimated for February and March. Do you want to you want to take anything? Back Feel here? a buzzer beater coming in on January. I mean, you said 31st. one inch in February and 0.3 inches in March. Are you are you you want to shift? Nope, I'm feeling good about February and March now. Now that I I think this through, January January would have totally worked if we didn't crash out about January 15th. All I needed was like another event out of there, and I may still get it. I'm going to refresh this. And you're feeling good about March being pretty dry. Yeah, yeah. Especially with El Nino falling out here. You can't rely on anything in March anymore. All right. What is, I'm what sticking to mine was three quarters of an inch in February. Good and, luck with that. And close to an inch. I, I an said inch 9. in March? Yeah, I went. I was bullish in March. I don't, I'm not sure. That's going to come back and haunt me, I think. That is, that's, yeah. But listen, like you just need one, one rain event. And I think with your huge deficit from January, I'm going to win this. That's how I'm looking man. at it. That's how I'm looking at it. That's good. That's good. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not. You're going to be thinking confident. about that as you're skiing, watching me text you the record snowfall in Tahoe. Oh. <laughs> I am going to make this All just right. unbearable. Well, we'll uh, I'll give you a, an update of what actually happens <laughs> next time we do this. Your flurries. <laughs> um, all right, Mike, any parting shots? No, no. It was, it was fun, Zach. And uh, see you next month, the uh, Valentine's Day edition. Ben, for the record, <laughs> take out that pause. <laughs> Edit that I out. just had to think about that. It's I'm not, sorry. I, this is not your comps. No, no, no. I, I've internalized it so much that I I, I just thought it would be interesting questions. to have a question. I just thought it would be interesting to pose a question. Yes. <laughs>